So I want to begin with a story um, that happened when I was teaching at Spirit Rock. And and then uh, go into what this talk is about, which is really about going home. Uh, I was having lunch with the teaching team in the yurt. That's what sort of passes for the staff dining room at Spirit Rock. There's a yurt, and that's where we eat together. And uh, I was hearing about, Jack was telling us about plans to establish a burial ground on the Spirit Rock land so that people could have their ashes there and that it would be um, in a spot below where the retreats take place so that if somebody wanted to come and pay their respects or bring a family member, they would be able to do that without intruding on the retreats. And we were all just talking about what a great idea this was. I mean, after all, you know, we're getting older. It's a good thing to think about these things. And there was tremendous enthusiasm about it. And then somebody asked, oh, well, okay, who wants to go first? (laughs) (laughs) And there was a funny silence. And then this kind of laughter, because nobody wants to go first. And none of us are going to, well, we're not planning to die anytime soon. That is, if we have any say in the matter, but we won't be here in the same way, witnessing your process and holding the retreat space and really, you know, cheering you on in your practice. So the question of how to continue on your own, how to trust the Dharma, how to trust yourself as you leave the retreat for going home, it looms large and it's important right now. So this talk is about that, about going home, about how to trust the Dharma, how to trust in experience. And that is how to trust what you've learned and your own ability to put it into practice. Because leaving the retreat, it's kind of like jumping into the unknown. I mean, you're pretty sure where you're going tomorrow, I think. Most of you have a home that you're going to. And you're pretty sure that when you arrive there, your couch will still be in the living room and the refrigerator will still be in the kitchen and your pets, if you have one, and your family, if you have one, they'll still be there waiting for you. But really and truly, do we know this? You know, it's a kind of, um, we can't possibly know. It's a, it's a leap of faith. And uh, it's a leap that we make all the time. But still, as Wes was teaching us last night, it's a much vaster situation than we can ever really know. As to paraphrase Wavy Gravy, if you don't have a sense of awe, it's not very awesome. But if you do have a sense of awe, which I felt Wes really transmitted to us last night, you know, if you do have that sense of awe, then we see that life, our life, is so deeply mysterious that it's unknown from gluons to galaxies, from all that is known to us to all the anti-known. 
So tonight I want to tell you about what the Buddha taught to his heart disciple, Ananda. Ananda was his attendant for most of his life, and I think his cousin too. And these are teachings that you can apply to your own lives, both within and outside of retreat, for how to let go of our fear-based habits and enjoy the ride home. Years ago, I was part of a group that was having lunch together at a restaurant on a mountaintop. Um, This is when I used to take vacations. And uh, people were hang hang gliding up there, and it looked like so much fun. And it was set up so that they would, you could see, you could sit at your table outside, and you could just watch them jump off the mountain and fly. So a dare was made. And an experienced hang glider was paid. And this was a dare made to the whole group. But suddenly I found myself strapped into a harness <laughs> with um, a man I'd never met in my life running toward the edge of a cliff. <laughs> and I'd like to tell you that what I did was what I planned to do, which was to jump gracefully off the cliff and just wow everybody watching. But what happened instead was a little different. Um, There was a kind of wooden jumping off place, and what you had to do was, and you were strapped together, and you had to run together about 100 feet to the jumping off place, which was right next to the restaurant, with everyone watching. So we ran, both of us, really fast toward the jumping off place, and then... I don't know, maybe it was about 10 feet before the edge. My legs just refused to move. They just stopped working. It was as though they saw the abyss before my mind did. And they just went on strike. They completely gave out. And so what happened was during that last part, my legs just dragged on the ground, (laughs) completely useless. And, of course, I had changed my mind, but fortunately, the glider had taken off. Uh, It had caught the wind by then, so it kind of pulled us to the edge. And I will never forget the horror of those first moments without the ground. It wasn't fun. It was terrifying. I had no idea. And uh, I was just hanging in this huge space right past the edge of the mountain, and I watched, paralyzed with terror, while... All the bushes and the rocks and the dirt and the whole side of the land just receded inexorably away. And I was hanging on to the only solid things I could find, which were the wire harness and the man. (laughs) (coughs) 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 And amazingly, out of nowhere, it seemed, some mindfulness appeared. It just appeared, and in a split second, I saw the crystal clear choice to be terrified and just cling to what appeared to be safe and solid, although it was really an illusion of safety because he was up there with me, (laughs) and so was the glider and all the wires and the harness, and um, to cling to the illusion of safety and solidity or to relax and open and trust and enjoy the ride. After all, 
this was clearly an opportunity that might not come again. And um, in fact, it never has. <laughs> um, it was a really beautiful day. Beautiful day, like some of the days we've had here. Just clear and sunny. And I could see the birds flying high over the lake under us. And uh, <laughs> it, there was just this vastness of air, of space, all around. And then there was just this soaring, quietly flying. The I, me, my just humbled into silence and relaxing and opening and resting in this great space of sky, of lake, of mind, just gliding, slowly falling through the arms of the cosmos. It was beautiful. Not long after the Buddha passed away, Ananda was living in a part of the bamboo grove called the Squirrel's Sanctuary. The bamboo grove, which you can still visit in a town called Rajgir in northern India, in Bihar, very poor province. Uh, This bamboo grove was given to the Buddha by a generous lay disciple who wanted to provide a protected practice place for the community. And we, too, are given protection and sanctuary, refuge, by the people who founded and everyone who supports this center and by the many people who care for us here, the staff, the cooks, the dedicated, skilled managers. And the Buddha's community extended the same protection, apparently, to the squirrels, Um, just as we do to the frogs and mice and deer and um, even the flies and songbirds here at IMS. In this sutta, Ananda explains that there's no one who has ever been like the Buddha and that he was, quote, the arouser of the unarisen path, the knower of the path, the finder of the path, the one skilled in the path. And there was nobody appointed to be his successor, either by the Buddha or by the community, because nobody had all these qualities and qualifications of the Buddha. Nobody could possibly fill those shoes, those sandals. And, you know, he didn't even wear any, so... He definitely, they couldn't be filled. So Ananda was asked, without your teacher, is your group left without a refuge then? And Ananda says, we're not without a refuge. We have a refuge. We have the Dharma as our refuge. So the squirrel sanctuary was a place where Ananda liked Uh, where he was living and where the squirrels liked to hang out in the bamboo grove. And the reason we can assume was that they knew they could be free from harm there and free from fear. And a refuge is a place where we too go to be free from our fear and our suffering. We go for refuge to find a way to live that will free us 
from suffering of a home or a familiar place that has become unworkable, unlivable for us. And maybe it's just a mind house, our mind home of our, you know, familiar habits and ruts and patterns that we deeply want to change so that we can live differently. Or it may be a country that we're fleeing or an addiction or a relationship that we have to leave for our lives to live and we become refugees in that way. But what's most essential is that we find the courage to just leave the familiar path of our suffering and set out (coughs) into the unknown, to walk a path of awareness and presence, this path of Dharma. Now you've all walked this path with great sincerity this week. I mean, you all know how to do this. Even if you think you don't, you do. Something good to remember is that it's not the experiences that you've had here that are important, although you probably won't forget them. It's learning how to meet experience and how to be with it. And you're taking home tools, not just experiences. You're taking home skills to navigate all kinds of change, sometimes really turbulent change. Skills that will serve you in ways that you really can't possibly even know right this minute. It's good to remember, too, that this way of being with experience that we've all been talking about and sharing this week um, is completely trustworthy, and it's always available. It's as accessible as this breath right now. It will never abandon you, abandon us. And it can be this breath, this sensation in the body, the car that just went by, the sound of my voice. Whatever brings you here now. Here you have a refuge. We have the Dharma as our refuge. It's so simple. It's not easy, but it is so simple. I think the clearest example of the kind of surrender to the simplicity of just being here, of the practice that you've been doing and we've been teaching, of just coming to our senses and letting go of all the elaborations and returning to the body step by step, to the breath, breath by breath, just returning to this simple fact of our embodied aliveness our own being. I think the clearest example of this came uh, to me when I was listening to a Dharma talk. And this talk was given by the Supreme Head Monk of Cambodia. His official title is Supreme Patriarch, but that word has different connotations for us. He was basically the head monk um, of Cambodia, Mahagosananda. Some of you may have met him. He was here in the early days when he first came to this country. So 
Mahagosananda was traveling with a group of us in Korea with my first teacher, the Korean Zen master, Desan Sanim. And this was a trip, a pilgrimage trip to these great Zen temples in Korea, which I had mentioned, seeing the ones in China and the ones in Korea are laid out that same way, that same map of consciousness that I talked about earlier. And we were at a country temple, Sudoksa, outside of Seoul, and along with um, hundreds of Korean monastics and many, many, many dignitaries uh, and some Western teachers and some students, uh, Mahagosananda was invited to give a Dharma talk. And he stood up in front of this illustrious assembly of his colleagues and peers and students and so forth. And he stood up in his very simple Theravadan robes with, you know, one bare shoulder. And he spoke in French. He spoke in the language of the country that colonized his. And here's what he said. Je suis tu es Il est, elle est, nous sommes, vous êtes, ils sont, elles sont. He just stood at the podium and quietly, calmly, slowly conjugated the verb être, which means to be. He said, I am. You are. She is. He is. We are. You, all of you, are. They are. It was so simple. And it was so utterly true. And he gave his talk without notes. They all did. But <coughs> it was Mahagosananda who radiated such metta karuna, such loving kindness and compassion. And he transmitted such a strong and unmistakable wave of wisdom and compassion that we were weeping, just listening to those simple words, just tears running down our faces. It was such a powerful transmission. We sat in that wave of um, such unmistakable tenderness, such unmistakable and infinite love and tenderness. He hardly said anything. So before he passed away, the Buddha spoke to his Sangha, to his community. And he said, what I've taught and explained to you as the Dharma and the discipline, which is a translation of sila, precepts, ethical living, morality, what I've taught you about these things, that's what will, at my passing, be your teacher. Now, shortly before he died, Ananda came to him and asked him, 
exactly how are we going to maintain the harmony and integrity of the community of the Sangha without your presence? I mean, it's fine for the Buddha to say that, but how would it actually happen? And so the Buddha gave a teaching, which I'm going to share with you, about the six qualities that he said, once practiced, create love and respect and lead to helpfulness, concord, non-dispute, and unity. So these sounded like good guidelines to me for going home. We could all use these things in our life, love and respect, helpfulness, harmony, non-dispute, unity, good ways to orient ourselves in the swirl of everyday life and sustain the practice. The first of these six, the first three, are really about relational mindfulness. How to enlist our, the intelligence of our bodies, our speech, our minds um, to free the heart. The first one is, you know, the Buddhist lists. It's a really, for, it's a great way to organize a talk. And, um, and hopefully it will help you remember too. The first one is bodily acts of loving kindness. So, and actually the full thing, bodily acts of loving kindness, both in public and in private, toward companions in the holy life. That's us, each other, our companions on the path, and all those whose lives we touch, included in that. I think a good example of this is um, I live in a place where several apartments, actually four households, share a washer and dryer that's out in back. And so once in a while, I'll go to get my laundry out of the dryer and you know, sometimes you put your laundry and you forget it or you, you know, just don't go right away to pick it up. And, and maybe someone else got there first needing to use the machine. And once in a while, instead of finding the clothes, you know, all jumbled up on top of the dryer, they've been folded. And there they are. It's a simple act of kindness, but it really matters. It feels wonderful when that happens. The second one is verbal acts of loving kindness. And as you begin talking, now here in the retreat, we're in silence again, but you will talk again. You can begin to voice your loving thoughts and feelings of appreciation and gratitude. That's a verbal act of loving kindness. Sometimes making amends to someone <clears throat> can be <clears throat> a verbal act, metta. Attending to some unfinished business of the heart. So that's body, speech, and then mind. Mental acts of loving kindness. And this is just remembering to offer metta karuna, loving-kindness and compassion to yourself, to others as you emerge 
from this retreat. And you can do it by making connections with others, by healing relationships when you get home. Hopefully you don't have relationships here that need to be healed, but if you do, um, to heal those. And offering metta, kindness, to whatever old fears and griefs um, have been tucked away somewhere in the heart, whatever places um, we've withheld forgiveness from. These places need attention and recognition. Now the fourth one is about dana, which we talked about this afternoon. It just means practicing generosity. And the phrase is unreserved sharing of any kind of gain. So anything that comes to us, sharing that. The first kind is just that generosity of kindness, of sharing the qualities of the heart that we cultivate here. Um, I mean, we're responsible for our path and how we walk it. And by now you know Everyone suffers. If you didn't know that before you came, you know that now. Everyone suffers. So it's a kindness and a generosity to forgive ourselves for mistakes and shortcomings with a compassionate heart. The other aspect of generosity that I want to talk about, actually two more. The Buddha said, if you knew what I know, about the power of giving, you wouldn't even eat one meal without sharing it. And uh, I had a friend who was from the Maori culture in New Zealand, and they have a very similar uh, practice embedded in their culture where generosity is, it's even part of every act of eating. And it was explained to me that in their culture, you never eat alone. It's just not done. It's like something unseemly that you would never do. Like, I don't know, masturbating in public or something. You wouldn't do it. And so you don't do it. And let's say you're alone and you're hungry and you have a sandwich and you're working and you just want to stop and have your sandwich well, you have to find somebody. You know, you have to go out on the sidewalk and say, and it's understood, I need you to have some of my sandwich so I can have lunch. Uh, You have to share. And now they're marginalized and misunderstood like so many indigenous cultures, but there's embodied this profound uh, tradition of generosity extending to hospitality. Another kind of generosity I'm going to mention, along with this fifth part, which is sila. Sila, you know this means our precepts and our integrity. Possessing in common those virtues that are unbroken. Sila. So it's our precepts, it's the other teacher that the Buddha gave us along with the Dharma teachings. 
I like, I mean, the word discipline often conjures, I don't know, kind of tighten when we hear it. Um, it's usually not something we go towards happily and willingly. We think we should have more of it, but it's a should. You know, we don't really embrace it, whatever that means. But another way to understand discipline is from the same root as disciple. And we could define discipline as having the courage to follow what we love. And having the wise determination to do what we love and what's most important to us. Both dana and sila are a gift of safety, of fearlessness. That's another meaning, giving the gift of fearlessness. And that's sometimes one of the definitions of generosity, but it clearly belongs in sila too. And what does that mean, to give the gift of fearlessness? I know, you're not really supposed to answer in these talks. It's a rhetorical question, and I'll answer it. Um, It means that we don't have to, first of all, be afraid of ourselves. That we don't have to be afraid of our own minds and hearts. And it means, secondly, that we don't have to be somebody that others are afraid of in order to survive in this life. So we offer the gift of being safe and trustworthy toward ourselves and toward others. So Sila is our refuge, too, along with Dharma. And I want to tell you how... um, how Sila protected the Buddha. Well, he was Siddhartha before his awakening, during the night of his awakening. And I want you to, you've, many of you heard the story and it's been referred to here, but I want you to imagine that Siddhartha is you and that this is not a story about some legendary other person in the way distant past or maybe a story about uh, somebody more blessed and fortunate in the Dharma, um, that this is a story about you and about your life of waking up. So imagine now that you've entered your meditation. You've sat down, the bell rang, you got to the hall, you're sitting, you've entered your meditation. And now Mara, who is sometimes called the demon of obsession, Now Mara's trying to disrupt your sitting through distraction, you know, trying to lure you into doubt or confusion (coughs) or temptation. So first he's sending all his beautiful sons and daughters to come and promise you tender love and comfort and sexual delight. And so you're being seduced by Imagine you're being seduced by the promise of the relationship that you've always dreamed of. So this would be powerful. It is, in fact. This is happening. But protected by determination and sila, your mind, it doesn't move. You see the attractive yogis or whoever else is appearing. You just see them as pleasant 
experience. And you're able to say, I know you, Mara. I see you, Mara. So like all of the figures of fairy tales and legends, you know, when they get, um, every devil, in, when they get thwarted, they get furious. And so Mara is no exception and sends armies, armies of demons to attack you. But again, protected by your sila from getting drawn into some kind of violent or angry reaction, your mind doesn't move. It's just an experience arising in the heart. The demons are seen as simply very unpleasant experience, and as you see them in that way, their weapons turn into a rain of fragrant blossoms. And finally, you see clearly that to identify with the I, who is the owner of experience, is suffering. You're the knower of experience, not the owner of it. You're the awakened one, the Buddha. So we have this legend as a kind of legacy of inspiration, and we can learn to see see things this way and really meet experience with steadiness and presence of heart. And even with that final challenge of doubt, where the Buddha just touches the ground, we, with a little bit of mindfulness, we can always touch the ground of experience, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And we can note, I know you, Mara. During one of my early retreats, I kept falling asleep on the cushion, and you may have experienced that, too, in the early days of this retreat, um, and I, but this was a Zen retreat, and we were supposed to bow and request to be hit with this wooden stick that we took turns carrying around the Zendo. And you would be hit right here on top of the shoulder. And it actually felt kind of good because this is a place that carries a lot of tension. So it would be, it was not intended to hurt anybody. It was just intended to release some tightness and energy and wake us up. But I was too sleepy and the stick didn't help. And by the end of the day, but this would, and this went on for days. At the end of the day, though, I would be so happy, you know, that feeling, I can go to bed. And um, I would get so happy and then I would go to bed and boing, wide awake, wide awake. And this happened day after day. And I went for my interview, and I told my Zen teacher, Desansanim, about it. And he said, oh, he said, that's a demon. Now, I, you know, we both knew that he didn't mean it literally. It was an expression of the wisdom of his culture, rather than identify with these mind states as I, me, mine, it helped me externalize the problem and not take it on as me or mine, but to see the impersonal nature of it and to be able, it was clearly not my failure, not my mistake, not because I was a bad student or a bad meditator. It was a known demon. It was Amara. 
And it was a known demon who tormented aspiring meditators. So knowing that, it was no problem. It would pass. And when you leave the retreat and you are inevitably confronted at times with challenges to your own integrity and ethical living, when you're swayed by temptation to act in ways that will be destructive, when you just feel like throwing those precepts to the winds, you can say right here, right in the midst of the fire, I know you, Mara. You can say, this is a demon, and really see the impersonal nature of these mind states, that they come and go. Another story of trusting the Dharma and the Sila comes also with a lot of bravery from Marianne Pearl, a journalist and practicing Buddhist, and you may remember her name, um, her husband, Daniel um, was, they were being journalists in Pakistan when he was captured by terrorists. She was actually four months pregnant at the time, and she began the search for her husband with the Pakistani police. And this is what she wrote. When we were searching for Danny, I would practice and know that he also was practicing This was an act of resistance. It was obvious to me that the terrorists were trying to instill fear. I knew right away what to do, which was to practice so that I wouldn't be paralyzed. And then four days later, they started sending emails with photos of him being held hostage. And then after a lot of um, fruitless negotiations, he was executed and... It was videotaped by his captors. And she goes on, When I learned that Danny was dead, I did not consider revenge for a second. That's amazing. Politicians are not going to win a war on terror with bombs. People are going to win the war with the way that they react to terrorism and the way they live up to their values, Pearl says. By writing about my faith, courage, practice, and resistance, I am fighting the war on terror. Terror is so powerful that you can lose all your capacity even to react. As a victim of terror, you have the opportunity to live up to your values. Buddhism was a very solid ground on which I was walking. My own practice one that guided me for over 18 years, gave me insight into our terrible situation, insight into the motives of the terrorists, and insight into the real and present risk of death. If nations respond to terrorism the way I have, we will win. So, the first of these six ways, these guides for our practice that the Buddha offered, the first three were the practices of relational mindfulness, offering metta through bodily acts, through verbal acts um, with the mind, 
through our body, speech, and mind. The fourth is generosity. The fifth is this sila. The sixth one is uh, having the fullness, and I'm paraphrasing, having the fullness of a noble view of life that is wise and whole. And this is samaditi. It's often translated as right view. Now here in retreat, we've all had a chance to see how we suffer when we cling to things and how we can stop. And this is wise view. This is going for refuge in our own open, clear minds, our own awareness. The Buddha was not advancing a point of view that is the right one. As much as we might like to feel that he was, and we're Buddhists, and it's very comfy and cozy, we're on the right path, and they're not, and you know that's not what he meant. He was really advocating right view as a wise way to live, non-clinging to points of view, non-clinging, non-clinging to any points of view, is what he was talking about. I don't know about you, but when I hear these beautiful teachings, um, and as you listen to all the Dharma talks about kindness and compassion and metta, doesn't the thought arise, this is so great, I want to be like this, I want to be a spiritual person. I want to be, um, you know, I love the spiritual path. It's the best. And, and this is just our bodhicitta. It's beautiful to feel inspired and to want to walk this path. But what happens often with the teachings is um, they kind of intersect, or as Jack was saying the other day, um, they get mapped onto our patterns of insufficiency. And so... We imagine it's not about us, and we start to create all these ideas about what a spiritual person is really like. And then we try to be like that, and without realizing it, we can start practicing the goal or the result instead of just the method, the practice. And and I've done this, so I'm speaking from experience. Um, and then if we start trying to practice the result of the of the practice, we inevitably, when we go home, will try to teach our spouses and our children um, what we've learned. And these teachings may not be so um, well-received, actually, and we don't understand why, because, right, it's very live for us. We can start to, without realizing it, just without, you know, we're very aware of their stuff. We get home and we can see so clearly and um, it can be, shall we say, a temptation to uh, just focus on their stuff instead of our own, instead of just doing our own work quietly and bringing mindful attention to what's happening in our own consciousness and how we're keeping our minds and hearts moment to moment and what's really true for us. All this happens outside of awareness. We don't do it on purpose. But we can go home with ideas about being a spiritual person. I won't be filled with anger, and I won't be filled with sorrow, and I won't complain or enact my humanness in all these ways. And 
And if you go home like this, chances are you'll be in conflict and suffering. I mean, the problem with an identity of being or becoming a spiritual person, like any other image or identity we try to maintain, we lose our intuitive connection to what's actually true. And practicing an ideal, we're also doomed to fail. You know, there's always that cold wind that blows between the gap between the ideal and the actual. And um, I want to tell you a story about that. Uh, There's a giant in Greek mythology. And, And by the way, this can be shattering when it happens. We can just lose our confidence and feel that Um, our practice as it is because it doesn't measure up or, you know, compare favorably to our ideals is no good. And that's really shattering. In the Greek myths, there's a figure named Procrustes. Now, Procrustes was an evil giant, and his name meant he who stretches. Now, Procrustes kept a house by the side of the road at the entrance to the city of Athens, And he would welcome travelers to his home. And he would invite them in for a lovely meal and um, to have a night's rest in his very special bed. And when they would ask, well, you know, what's so special about your bed? He would um, say why it has the amazing property that its length exactly matches whoever lies down in it. Magic. What Procrustes didn't volunteer was the method by which this one-size-fits-all was achieved. Namely, as soon as the guest laid down, Procrustes went to work, stretching them like on a rack if they were too short and chopping off their legs if they were too tall. Uh, Now, we do this to ourselves whenever we stretch the truth or try of who we are and try to live into some ideal that just isn't where we are yet or anytime we try to disavow and deny and you know lop off um, parts of our being of ourselves of our experience and today this metaphor of the procrustean bed is still used to illustrate what we do when we apply practices to ourselves instead of inhabiting them, being within the experience. When we try to control the breath, for example, to try and make it fit to our idea of what a deep, slow, perfect breath would be like. I mean, that's a silly example, but you know what I mean. I remember coming home from retreat with ideals of how loving and compassionate and spacious I was intending to be, and I could find myself sometimes only a few hours after walking into the house. I remember once standing in front of the stove, and it's just one of those moments etched in your memory, standing in front of the stove yelling at my then spouse. That's not why we got divorced. But I want you to know that, you know, you, despite coming, feeling so, it's so easy to love them all when we're here, <laughs> isn't it? You know, it's like watching children sleep. They're so incredibly beautiful and adorable um, when they're asleep. So all the energy of the retreat 
can very easily flow away from our mindfulness and into our patterns of reactivity. So it does take some mindfulness and vigilance to be aware of this and not to be surprised when it happens and um, and not to be surprised if it's even really intense, but to have some forgiveness and understanding. This is just what happens. And home is the place where the rubber meets the road, where the cushion meets our life. But returning home, it is possible to make our life practice, to alternate periods of, of silence and quiet with, even if it's just 10 minutes, even if it's just interrupting a conversation to sit quietly somewhere for a minute before resuming it, um, having a little timeout, alternating periods of quiet with periods of interaction and busyness. And if you think in terms of quickies, you know, small moments of doing this, it's possible for everyone. Can we make each thing that we do the most important thing in the whole wide world simply because we're doing it right now? And can you return to the breath as to your beloved and remember the moments here of falling in love that beautiful poem, I forget whose it was, but just of falling in love with everything during retreat, the lilacs, the new leaves, life itself, ourselves, yourself, and how these moments came about. They came about because you had a great willingness to surrender to the simplicity of this practice, breath by breath, moment by moment being with, staying near, as close to experience as you can. And this is something that we can do, you can do, anytime we're a bit mindful about ourselves. So I want to go over now just a few specific guidelines for how you can do this. Practical ones. The first one is to just practice meditation every day to return to the calm, natural presence of our own simply being. The second one is to extend some of this calm, natural being into your next activity, into our next activity. To be mindful, yes, but also we can offer certain metaphrases. May my work and all that I do contribute to peace and freedom from suffering for everyone in the world. May my eating this food be a blessing, a wish of loving kindness for every being who may be hungry at this time. We can use every experience as a gift, a reminder to wake up as um, a chance to learn. And you can find a buddy, you know, even somebody from the retreat who lives far away from you. You can be meditation buddies by saying, okay, let's just say that for a month 
after this retreat, we're going to sit every day for some period of time, even if it's brief. And then we're going to just check in by email. Did you do it or not? Or sometimes you can make a time that is the same time. And you know, you know, if you can't leave your house, you have small children or whatever reason, or you're far away from anybody else you know who practices, you can make a time and say, I'll know that at this time you're sitting and you'll know that I'm sitting. And so it's a kind of pact that um, helps. When I was a single mom, I had some friends up the street who also sat and the agreement we had was that they would come and sit with me. One of, it was a couple that one of them would come at least once a week, but I would never know which morning it was going to be. And that really helped me get up, even when tired. So doing these kinds of things, you build in support. Of course, find a sitting group and a sangha if you can. Go to retreats, even if it's just a one day Go, you know, when you can. And this way you practice frequently through the day. I mentioned in the Dana talk that Khalil Gibran said that work is love made visible. Our practice when we do it is love made visible. And this is where you express your love and respect for yourself that you deserve to make meditation, to make um, your spiritual life a priority, that you deserve this. You can make an altar or a shrine. One person told me that he put on his altar um, some things that had meaning for him that reminded him of the patterns that he was trying to work on. So he put a fire engine because he was always trying to put out other people's fires and he just couldn't even hear about someone having a problem without feeling like he had to fix it. And he put a picture of a judge because he was always judging other people, probably himself too. I have another friend who put a little ambulance because, you know, similar to the fire engine. And you can put inspiration. You know, I have a photo of my mom who's 86 and has been able to sustain a love and appreciation for being alive. And her life isn't so easy being 86. Um, Although, as she says, um, consider the alternative. I have a picture of my grandchildren. You know, you can have on San Suu Kyi some of the people who are heroes for you. Coretta Scott King, who died January 30th or 31st, I can't remember, but one of those days. Um, your place of work can then be an extension of your altar. This is ideal, I know. Some workplaces are just so difficult and busy, but it's an intention, like a metaphrase. It's a seed of intention that you can carry in your heart. And you can, you can either say phrases, you know, bless my hands into thy loving service, bless me into usefulness, may, I, may everything I do today be kind, um, may I have the courage and wisdom to do what I need to do, you know, these kinds of things. Because your work is a very powerful form of spiritual practice. Um, and I'm just going to read. Actually, I don't think I am. Hold on. Yes, I am. 
This is the story of an emergency room doctor in a major city hospital, and he was talking about how stressful his life, his job used to be, and how his experience has changed since he integrated his spiritual practice into his work. And being an emergency room doctor, he often um, has families panic, and they call 911, and then they bring their loved one to the emergency room to die, and he would be the one who would have to break the news to the family. And he said um, he wasn't prepared in any way for what would happen. And people, just their fear and confusion and anxiety and helplessness. And then um, he said the way that he would deal with it was through detachment. He just cut off his emotions. And he didn't really think he could help them after all. Their loved one was dying or had died. And he said, this was one of the things that I hated the most about my job. Often the family would get angry and hostile. The work was fearful and unpleasant for me. Since I started doing spiritual practice in the emergency room, I've watched the person's expression in the final few minutes of life change to one of acceptance, sometimes even a gentle smile, replacing the fear and anxiety. It looks like an opening, a release. Then when I have to go and tell the family that their loved one has died, there's an enormous difference in their reaction. They thank me and even come up and hug me. This new experience I'm having since doing my spiritual practice in the hospital has transformed my life and medical practice. So I want to conclude this talk by reading you a quote from Martha Graham. There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. It's not yours to determine how good it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It's your business to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep open and aware directly to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. My beloved teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi, was dying um, while we were sitting a retreat. And she knew that we were sitting at that time um, while she was in the hospital doing her dying. And even at the bottom of her life, she was able to remember. I don't know. Did she remember what the Buddha actually said to his disciples? But what she said to us, very simply, as we say to you, you know what to do. Continue your practice. So thank you. Let's just sit for a minute.
This talk was given by Trudy Goodman at Insight Meditation Society on May 27, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.